this week's episode of Losing It, we're going to talk about healthcare, mental health, and as always, our personal experiences. We'll also hear from our friend Megan about patient advocates and why you might need one. My name is Zach. I'm joined by Maggie and Corey. Thanks for tuning in. And it's strange to you, like when we were born, we don't get an instruction manual. And then these things happen. Uh, like I started getting headaches and I was in eighth grade and I didn't know a lot, you know, physically speaking. And then everything changed, like who I was entirely, my perspective, because pain took that from me and made me know what to appreciate, know what my limits were, know what what I could do. Uh, so I really shouldn't say limits, but it's like something that breaks you to your core. That's that's rare. That something in your own body does that to you. So. Mm. It's when it comes together, when you find a way to take ownership of that pain, even though it's still there, that's the most powerful thing, probably. I don't know. It doesn't feel that way a lot, maybe just in the sentence. <laughs> I've been in chronic pain for 10 years. That's a lot of years. Like all the time? Like right now, you're in back pain? Yeah. Yep. I've had three surgeries. So after my first surgery, I felt better for six months, no pain. I will never forget those six months than one day. Um, what happened that time? I think I got, I did headbutted a soccer ball in gym class. <laughs> um, that was stupid. I got a concussion and the headaches from that just kept going. Concussions aren't fun. No, no, especially when you got a bad neck because it just makes it worse and it's just not a good environment. Um, and then my second surgery, so my, my post-op appointment with Ben Carson, as a fun fact. Oh, um, really? He was my surgeon, yeah. Um, my post-op appointment turned into pre-op for another surgery, and it was considered exploratory surgery on my head, and I was 15 years old. Um, and after that surgery, I was in it. it took me, I recovered really quickly, like two weeks, and then I felt better for nine months, and then I crashed in a wave. And the headaches came. A literal wave. Yep. And up the beach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, they came and they uh, did not go away until January of 2019 when I got a major, major surgery that I still am recovering from. And, uh, and I don't think they even went away then. But hopefully I'm doing better than I was before. Terrible segue here, but I'm feeling there's a connection somehow. <laughs> sure. So I'm going to ask, why patient advocacy? So people are having a chronic illness, having an invisible illness, having a symptom that is common but hard to define exactly what it is by CT scan lab work or um, these tests that our providers know to do to have an assessment and, and figure it out. When it's tricky to figure out, you go through hell and you're told to explore the depths of your mind. Maybe it is anxiety and depression that's causing your pain and you are dismissed and you're made to prove something that takes a lot away from you. And that's wrong. And when I started going to the doctor, my mom was a nurse and she would like put it in me that you tell them how you feel and you don't let them tell you how you feel. Mm. Um, but it's hard because you're going against the grain mm. and there are so many changes, so much to keep up with and you have to beg for information. You, you have to, it's hard. And uh, so I'm there because I want to put the pieces together as best I can and make, make this healthcare experience a better one where we're not having to prove that we are human because we are hurting and we are treated with dignity and compassion when we are suffering the most and that we have people looking out for us and our voices and it's not a top-down style from these 
providers to the patient and you're not told what to do, it's a teamwork model. So I'm here advocating for that. Sure. Kind of like it's clapped. It's a good motive for it. You kind of got a little bit of gladiator going on there because you're going up against the system. I am. At the hospital I'm at now, I'm one of two people who do my job, and I'm going against the grain, and people don't always like to see me. I mean, in fact, they don't. I am essentially the complaint sure. department when there's a concern I go in. You can't solve, it's hard to solve this stuff. There's not the structures in place where that's made to be the norm. So when you're advocating for somebody against the grain, you have to build this bridge. Uh, and yeah, it feels like it's hard. <laughs> yep. But I'm fierce and it's cool because that's a side of me I don't always have. At work, I'm like, oh, watch out. <laughs> Probably not like that deep voice, you know, but I'll put people in line when I need to. And it would seem like that's very necessary that position when you're going up against doctors who don't want to hear anything else after they've made their diagnosis, right? Yeah, and nurses and other staff. I mean, you see enough patients, you become jaded, so you know what's what. Mm-hmm. You don't live inside that body, so you don't. So on a wholesome note then, what does a win look like for you in that situation, in that job? I count very small things as wins. Yeah, what's um, a win? I mean, I thought this patient was going to die in the first wave of COVID, mostly because he didn't have any family. And I, I would get up there to his room every night and call his family and his delusional repeating things. He had broken his neck. Mm. And then he just got so sick after that. He's an older guy. And uh, they just couldn't figure it out. And I, you know, I was I showed up and he got to know me. He told me I was on his baseball team. I was his, what did he call me? I don't know, but... It was nice because he got home and he FaceTimes me occasionally with his son because they say that I, I was the reason why he was able to get home. After the break, we'll see how easy it is to misdiagnose the brain. Stay tuned. So you guys want to tell me about your experiences in healthcare? I mean, I haven't had too, too much experience in healthcare. I kind of work in the healthcare space, but not on like a personal patient level. So I don't know how relevant it is, but I'm excited about technology in healthcare and like where that's going and, and the realm of possibility there. Um, so you're losing it in the sense that you're just geeking out over it. I'm geeking out over it. It's really cool <laughs> that we can run a model on like a CT scan and pinpoint exactly like the volume of different nodules and stuff like that mm-hmm. and like point them out in really, really, really odd places that like maybe a radiologist would miss. Um, well, when I see the models do stuff like that, it makes me feel like I'm doing good work. Um, That's super cool. I find um, a lot of things are missed by providers. That's like one of my number one really? cases we share. Um, so this is an important tool. My goodness. Yeah. My experience in healthcare, I think, is more with my dark experience with health care is absolutely more on the mental illness side mm-hmm. and being treated for that, mm-hmm. which those that know me know that that's a long, huge piece of my life and my goal in life. But, I don't know, make a huge story a little bit shorter, I reached a point where my mania and depression were really 
showing themselves in the beginnings of the worst ways. And it led me to finally, after a mental breakdown on a stranger's floor, uh, I decided to check myself into the psych ward. And that was quite an experience. They only kept me there for a week because insurance wanted my ass out of there. And, you know, every day you meet with the psychiatrist and then every day you have group sessions and then every day there's activities and then every day the nurses are telling you to stop getting along so well with the other patients because we all became friends. Um, I met a very interesting person there and we kind of grafted to each other pretty quickly. Um, and I think that frightened them, which didn't make much sense to me because she was a very outspoken lesbian. And there was nothing happening that way with us. We just bonded because <laughs> we were both there because we were insane. <laughs> but no, the doctor just decided to give me the boot because of the in decision with insurance. And the part where it gets hinky and weird for me is when my records were released, because um, you know, in addition to all of those activities I described, you have multiple uh, interview sessions with nurses and other types of health professionals. And I got all of their notes to take to the therapist that I was then discharged to see. And I, because I'm insane, I read over all of them. <laughs> and it was so, I felt like I was on an episode of Black Mirror or something, or The Twilight Zone, where, I, like, I remember the conversation, but they wrote down something completely different than what I said mm -hmm. on all of these lines of these notes. And I remember handing it to the therapist, and I was like, this is freaking weird, man. Like, I didn't say that. That wasn't what we talked about. Why did they put that there? And then even with the doctor's notes especially, that really pissed me off what he was saying, because... I got misdiagnosed out of that, put on an SSRI, which sent me through manic mood cycles for like a month or two, and they kept upping the dosage because they're just going off what this doctor said until finally another doctor in the same practice said to my doctor at the time, have you considered that he's misdiagnosed? and you're giving him the wrong drugs. And that was just the beginning of the whole, the trials of Sea Highland and prescription drugs. <laughs> Which, I don't know, the system failed me in a lot of ways because, again, long story short, after six years of drilling down into my psyche trying to figure out why I was ill, and, you know, treating myself because I got off drugs. I kicked the drugs after a while and I stopped, and it's a very, um, it's a, it's a very tricky topic with a number of friends of mine. Um, because, you know, at the time they were seeing me at a very bad place. And then when I said, I'm done taking drugs, um, you know, the understanding is that you have this disorder they treat it with these drugs, 
you're not doing that part, you're going to become unhealthy. But I just said, fuck it. Fuck no. I'm not doing that to myself anymore. I don't trust these people. I don't trust the therapists that keep dropping me. I don't trust the psychiatrists that keep putting me on three different medications at a time, making my life a living hell, making it hard to hold a job, making it hard to think straight and, you know, better myself. So I just decided I was going to do it myself. And that was a long, arduous process that I'll save for another conversation. But on the other side now, I'm glad that I advocated for myself in that sense and did the research for myself and figured out what was best for me because nobody else was going to do that. I was just another number in the whole system of lifelong patient who gets prescribed this drug. So I'm wondering like how common a situation like that is for like mental illness in, in the system right now. In which sense being misdiagnosed? I just I think I mean I, I don't know too too much about it, but the understanding that I have is that mental illness is something that we just understand very, very little about. We don't understand the human mind that well. Right. Um, so it would make sense that a misdiagnosis would be a pretty common thing. But that would just be my my suspicion. I, I well, and, and, you know, they're re-releasing new versions of the handbook regularly. Mm-hmm. So, because, because we're coming up with more varieties of illness diagnosis. Um, which, sure, that makes sense. The further we understand something, the more categories we have to place things in. Yeah. yeah. But my thought and my issue has been that when I did all that work on myself, drilling down, you know through all the insanity, by the time I hit the pipeline of where all the bad juju was coming from that caused everything to be so twisted, it started bursting out and, you know, surprise, there's this thing you forgot about that you suppressed and this is what's really been causing you all this hell. I was pissed because I thought back to early conversations with psychiatrists, therapists, where the only questions that are being asked are, is there a history of bipolar in your family? And I am like calling grandparents and calling my aunt and uncle and my parents like, hey, is there a history of this? No, not that we know of. Like, so-and-so got a little sad sometimes, but it's probably because you drank too much. Maybe it's connected, I don't know. But no one like lost it, like you've been losing it. So then I'm like, why isn't it that we explored the possibility that trauma could also have such a drastic effect on the mind Mm -hmm. and cause these problems? Which I'm not going to use this as a pulpit to preach, but that's my experience. Yeah, I mean, I feel like misdiagnosis and just like trying to label something too soon without having enough, like in that, in my experience, that's what I went through. like I was going through a really abusive relationship at the time and that was kind of throwing me into spirals, making me like incredibly emotional, giving me like abandonment issues. Um, and I went to a therapist and she basically looked at all of that, looked at my history of having a narcissistic dad and told me that like I'm checking all the boxes for being borderline personality. Um, 
And she was basically like, I'm not diagnosing you, but like, I want to treat you as if you have it, which then kind of caused me to like, look into what borderline was. And it threw me even more into a spiral because you read all these articles about how there, there aren't a whole lot of therapists that want to treat them. And it's like this lifelong thing. There's no, there really isn't treatment for it. You just kind of have this label and you have to live with it and just accept that you're just this person that has these like off the wall emotions and just like these quick triggers. And um, then later on, after not going to that therapist anymore, I did a bunch of research in psychology on a multitude of things like borderline, bipolar, um, dissociative identity, just like diving in as far as I could. And I bought like all these workbooks for borderline um, and started just like acting as if I had it, basically just diagnosing myself because someone told me that I had parallels. WebMDing until you were convinced yeah. of cancer. Yeah. Um, just freaking myself out beyond belief and then eventually got out of that relationship, which I ended up going back into it, but long story short, got out of it, started going to therapy again, different therapist, and I told her that my last therapist thought that I might have borderline personality disorder, and she was like, I don't think that that's accurate at all. Like, I think that you were in a, an abusive relationship where you were, you had emotional trauma, and like, that's what was throwing you into these spirals, that's what was throwing you into these cycles. Um, it's not like a diagnosis, it's just an experience that caused this for you. Um, and it like, it gave me a little bit of a, an identity crisis when she was so quick to label it that way. Um, so I think, like you said, like, I think it's pretty common for misdiagnosing, but I also think it's pretty common for them to just like read a textbook and see that some of these things overlap. I mean, like, uh, that's the other thing. Like I have a generalized anxiety disorder. Like I have anxiety all the time. I live in perpetual anxiety. Um, and a lot of those symptoms overlap with borderline and like it overlaps with depression, it overlaps with bipolar, it overlaps with everything. So to label it that quickly, it's, it's a little bit out of line. Like I feel like you need to know a little bit more. Um, also like it's hard, I had been seeing her for a few months. I think it's hard for her to gather after a few months going to therapy once a week like what my life looked like, the things that I was actually going through and experiencing in order to get me to where I was. Um, but yeah, I, I guess that's my tidbit on the healthcare system. <laughs> I think perception plays like such a huge role that we should think about because like that provider, every provider, the way that we all learn things, right? Like they're human too. Mm -hmm. uh, their, their perception might play a role. Yeah. But how is that measured? I'm not sure, and I hopefully we'll learn more over the next couple of years. But um, like the way we tell stories in research, your most unreliable source is a personal narrative when, when you're letting that person expound on the, their answer. Yeah. So it's never something that can be like perfectly trended because that's our human condition. Like none mm -hmm. of us are going to say the same thing, or I don't think any of us will. And so. The way that we present things each day or each, each session, like I understand those are aspects of our behavior, 
but we're also in a counselor's office being interviewed about mm -hmm. our psychological state. And depending on the day, I might be exaggerating things. I might be having like a pity fucking party yeah. or I might be like peppy little whatever. But you know, so I know my moods fluctuate and, and it's crazy to think that those hour long interactions can make these narratives. And, and it's the same physically speaking, like why, like when I went to the doctor, I felt like sometimes, like, is this real or is it not? I feel like I'm having to prove myself. I know all the symptoms of this condition. I want a diagnosis. I want relief. And I want to be believed. Like, I don't want another surgeon or neurologist to tell me, like, this is in your head. Like, yes, it's in my head. I feel it. Get it out. But, um, you know, that was a good one, guys. Um, uh, yeah. But I tried to like not. I, I'm really good at turning things around and being like, "What did I do here to be responsible for that?" So that's where you know. But I do think I advocate that we, are, you know, always think about that. But no, I think the healthcare is a mess, and it, it's not the patient's fault. But I think it's important because if we're holding them accountable for having a consistent perspective, we should be re-examining ourselves, and especially as we get older. Because I find like looking back on specific memories of interactions from then versus like now and especially I'm helping patients through certain things I'm like wow like how to tell younger me different things for that mm -hmm. it's cool to see yourself growing retroactively and asking mm -hmm. those questions yeah well I think another key thing to recognize as well is that particularly in my experience being a mental health patient doctors are also always looking for the signs of crisis um, and let's say I regressed and had a crisis moment and started spinning out of control in mania and or depression. Um, and with my historic highs and lows, we could escalate that to a crisis real fast. And the first thing they're going to want to do is check me in and give me drugs to bring me down or to pick me up, depending on which extreme, which pole I'm on. So that's very important for them to look at because statistically, those are the situations where you, know, you experience loss of life and tragedy. So of course, the first thing they're gonna be looking for when you are in a more hyper, uh, more manic type of a mood is they're going to be looking for those signs of potential crisis because that's what they're trained to do and that's what they're trying to prevent is like I said, the, that from going too far. Um, so to your note of what you're saying about looking back on yourself in those interviews, one-on-one -on -one with a doctor or therapist, you're not thinking necessarily about how that is being documented or portrayed as they're checking their checklist, looking for, okay, is this person suicidal? Is this person this? You're just, like you said as well, just looking for some relief. You're getting it out. You're trying to be understood. You're, tr you're hopefully trying to find hope in a diagnosis, whether you mean it that way or not, because that means, okay, there's a path to treatment, which potentially means a path to becoming healthy. Because what we're talking about here is dis-ease. And again, to the point you made about going back and telling yourself, handle that a little differently. Of course, there's going to be those times when we're in disease and out of that, you know, discomfort and pain, we're not communicating effectively. We're not really getting the point across as to what 
we're actually needing and what we're actually feeling. So the doctor's got a really difficult job there to try and communicate with someone who may just be railing and kicking and screaming emotionally or even physically because of what they're experiencing in that moment of pain and agony and disease. So yes, you're talking about holding health professionals accountable to a standard, but I think we also just kind of echoing your point, have to consider that they're a human who's fulfilling a very difficult role that we're demanding complete transparency over and, you know, complete honesty. And it's a very high standard. I'm not saying it shouldn't be, but we're holding them to a very high standard. Talk about the pressure getting to you. You know, as you're saying, you're involved in healthcare and the pressure gets to you. I can't imagine a psychiatrist who cares about their patients. What does that conversation look like when they get home after a long day treating people with really difficult problems to diagnose? There's also the element of like liability, right? Like there, to a certain yeah. extent there's protocol that this doctor is supposed to follow. Like they've, they've been taught that you look for these things and if they're in crisis, you do this. Right. It's um, also insurance. Insurance. And so I'm going to say like if they don't follow these procedures and protocols, like the, the onus is on them, like that. Their ass is, is on, on the line. Exactly. We also have a um, like case manager nurse. I forget what her actual role is in the emergency department, but she does the metrics for determining whether a patient meets inpatient criteria, outpatient criteria, like all your blood pressure, your heart rate, your lab work, all of that comes together and you like, you have to submit that to insurance for it to be proven that that's necessitated. So everything that's being done, it's not always like, oh, I think you should be admitted. That's going to happen. Oftentimes, if your body isn't showing certain things, they're bound um, to admit you, which I think is where, I don't know about that influence in healthcare sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, you just need some help for your problem and it might not meet all the markers, but mm -hmm. it's how you keep with control over the census, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You mentioned that you guys are doing research. Like, is it specific to patient advocacy or what kind of research were you talking about? Uh, yeah, mostly like case studies for how other hospitals are implementing their programs and, and what they're doing or, you know, the effects of certain things like having a space for staff to rejuvenate themselves. So we've made a mobile Zen Den for staff during this time. <laughs> and then we did find a permanent location in a very small office, but it is the thought that counts and, and, um, and having a safe space for people to go and, and, you know, read a little card from kids who donated her color, eat some candy or chips and listen to some calming music and have some central oils or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there, tea. Um, in the first round, there was like a TV from the seven, you know those big TVs yeah. on wheels? Yeah, with the waterfall, <laughs> like a VHS. And like, this is where you come to relax or die. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, um, it's, there's only it's, one VHS in there. <laughs> been there a long time. <laughs> yeah, truly. But it's also the structuring of how I do my job and, and who do you talk to first? You know, do you talk with the nurse, the provider, the patient? Um, the way that I approach everything, that could fall into a metric or how I um, how I document it. And I sometimes will write some notes and patients' charts, but it's, it's important not to be judgmental or dramatic. You have to be objective and it has to be clinically oriented because that's a medically legal document. 
um, or how I document it and share the concerns with leadership, that impacts how the patient's concerns are going to be addressed. So it's a serious job and it's also reported up to the state. Um, additionally, hospitals are reimbursed, reimbursed at a high rate for patient experience scores through Prespini, especially in Maryland. Yeah, you mentioned this before, it's, it's survey-based. So yeah. you have to send it out and they have to actually care enough to... Yeah, and often if you care enough, you're not really going to be saying nice things. Oh, geez. But it's cool to, it's not, it's cool and it's not cool that um, being empathetic and kind can turn into data collection. Like, mm -hmm. It's going to evolve more. So right now it's like baseline, like Likert scale stuff, but I think we're going to go cooler places and mm -hmm. I'm hoping the narratives I capture, like I've got a desk full of stories and it's really cool right. of things that could help. I think the advocates should be licensed counselors. So you're mm -hmm. going around, you're seeing people and you're hearing their experiences and you're helping them with coping mechanisms, with understanding what's happening, with making a plan that they can understand mentally to keep up with their body that's not keeping up. So I did a huge research paper in my first semester on the impact of prophylactically treating anxiety and um, COPD symptoms in, in patients suffering with the condition. And I, uh, there were, I had like 20 articles proving that you absolutely want that intervention education for these patients. Your anxiety symptoms look a lot like COPD exasperation symptoms. So it is common that it's going to go together. You're, you go into a fight or flight when you're in pain, you know, so you're going to be anxious when you're in pain. It's, I think it's so stupid that people are like, why are you anxious? It's like, I, I don't fucking know. How would you feel, you dumbass? Like, I, I just, that's just, it's, it's a, I think that's the norm. I don't know. How do you guys think? When you're in pain, do you feel anxious? Yeah. I think so. Depends I don't know. It's been a while since I've been in, like, Pain. Depends on the pain. That's it. Yeah. I recently injured my shoulder um, and I tore my labrum and I I was just chilling on that for a few months before I could finally get surgery and I think I was more at first I was so irritated and sad because I couldn't play instruments anymore because my arm was useless. And then I started getting angry because I did I couldn't get a straight answer as to what was going on. Because they couldn't tell until they opened me up really what was going on. Mm -hmm. And then in the weeks leading up to surgery, I was very anxious. Understandably so. Mm -hmm. but, but did the pain make you anxious? Like the pain itself. The pain didn't make me anxious. What made me anxious was being told that the surgery could be very extensive or it could be minimal they but they didn't know until they opened it up why do they do that that's what they did to me too it's the truth that get up to date with your cd scans or even these MRIs. why are they not seeing what they need to see once they get in there but actually it's not like i would know really what they're doing anyways and there's so much to getting in the shoulder even that of course they can't he the main thing was he doesn't know how many surgeries we're gonna have to do because he doesn't know how much work he's gonna have to do until he sees how bad the damage actually is. And the MRI just couldn't show it all. And part of that is because MRIs are expensive and insurance didn't wanna pay yeah. for multiple MRIs. And even though the one they got really was at a terrible angle and the, the spot in question, it didn't matter. They checked the box, they got the MRI, they sent it off. And it's just easier for them to say, oh yeah, We'll just give you a quote range of what the surgery might cost and what it might be and kind of give you an idea of the best case scenario and the worst case scenario that you can kind of prepare for in terms of how many surgeries or how little. 
but the, the surgeon is prepared to do any of those surgeries in the room. So that it's not really, it's not really like they're risking anything by saying, oh, did we send the wrong guy in there? No, it's just this is easier and less expensive to just give you an idea, then open you up and do what needs to be done there. And then we mm -hmm. move on from there. Luckily, it was, you know, just one and then done. So, you know, a month, here I am a month later through a month of physical therapy and I've almost got full range of motion back. So it, it worked out definitely on the more positive end of what they had projected. But still, it, that, did, that did give me anxiety, not knowing what was going to happen or which mm. short that's the root of anxiety but yeah. yeah not so much the pain but I think that's because I've got a very interesting relationship with pain so yeah I feel like part of it part of it might be because I'm a little bit of a hypochondriac but I also just constantly live anxiety so like maybe that has something to do with it but if I have pain and I don't know what it is I'm absolutely anxious <laughs> about it <laughs> oh, I just ignore like random aches. I just assume that it's the body being. The body. That's my problem too. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> just probably not going to be a good thing getting older. But like, no, I, I was 20 and I fractured my kneecap, and then I walked on it for a month, thinking, "Oh, it's just bruised." <laughs> and then I finally went to the doctor, and they're like, "It's not bruised. <laughs> you I broke think, it." I think for me, it's like any time that I have a pain that's related to like my family history. Like, my grandmother died of ovarian cancer, and occasionally I get this weird pain, like, in, like, my pelvis. And you're like, oh, yeah. Like, my ovaries. And I'm like, I have cancer in my ovaries. It's I'm, a big one. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and that's every week, where I go. Every week, you get a new case of ovarian cancer. <laughs> it's terrifying. No. <laughs> that's brutal. It's a, that's a reasonable fear, though. Yeah. If it right? yeah. has run in the family before, it yeah. makes sense why your mind would go there. Exactly. <laughs> Shell out hundreds of dollars at the doctor to figure out if it is or not. Exactly. To do the right thing, catch it early. Yeah. So I have one final question, and I think it's very relevant to our listeners. What's the dress code for a patient advocate? <laughs> <laughs> I wear fun clothes. I wear business, business professional clothes. Today I wore these groovy pants. Man, I was like ready to rock. She she has the best outfits for work ever. Like I when I was actually at the house most of the time. I'd see you like walk out in your outfit in the morning and I'd be like, damn, look at you. You're just getting it today. Got some rainbow skirts I can pull out. Okay. I try to be bright and cheery. Makes sense. Bring the color. But not every day, you know. But you know, <laughs> it's a nice form of expressivity for me, wearing like cool clothes, putting them together. It's a good, like, you look good, you feel good, maybe, but Inspire. probably not. <laughs> Inspire some confidence, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Or just make people smile, especially the old people. They like the colors of touching necklaces and stuff. <laughs> it's cool. Nice. That wasn't my last question. My last question is actually, where do you see yourself in the next few years going down this path of, you said you're studying... Yeah, I'm, I'm in my master's program for clinical mental health counseling. I should have my degree or my license, my degree, in about two and a half years, and then hopefully my license within that same time period. And then I'd be a licensed graduate professional counselor. And then I just need to complete, I think, 700 or 1,000 or a million more hours, and then I would be a licensed just clinical a, professional a, counselor. Um, 
and I don't know exactly where I'll be, but I really want to apply my idea and find a place that will let me pilot my idea to have counselors seeing inpatients. Yeah. Um, but maybe, maybe I would go get my PhD. I've always thought about that, but um, school is hard, and it's important to have an income when you have student loan debt from undergrad. But I'm very passionate about this stuff, and I'll just see where the passion takes me. For now, I'm very grateful, and I don't know where I'm going to be, but hopefully I'm just going to still be doing this. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like ideas like that are, especially with you saying that there's not a lot of data in this field, and it's not very popular at the moment, it sounds like that's the kind of innovation that could really make it more of a standard in hospitals, right? Yeah, I mean, even here in Frederick, it's cool because being at a community hospital, I was at a research hospital before this, uh, Georgetown, and being at this community hospital, I feel you're able to make so much more of a difference and learn. I am so glad that I am working, and whatever brought me here is just so cool because it's a good feeling. I call work an antidepressant because, like, I love to learn, and I love to learn from people and to listen and just, like, see the world through other people and, and I get to do that every day and it really sucks sometimes and it's hard and heavy and um, yeah I mean I see way more than I thought because I mostly cover in the emergency department so I'm down there a lot of my day so you see these serious things come in mm -hmm. I mean really I get involved and I see people at the worst and I try to talk them down and do a lot of de-escalation and stuff um, but it's really cool and I would you know it's it's my passion. See, I would, would love to say, like, oh, I'll take you all there and you'll love it just as much. But you guys would probably be like, Megan, what the fuck? <laughs> um, some of it's really funny. <laughs> or disgusting. <laughs> or inappropriate. <laughs> or smelly. <laughs> Just go find us on Anchor or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Um, please remember to like, listen, and subscribe, and tell your friends. And tune in for our next episode. <laughs>